Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day there, Sleuthers. Aaron Noonan. Great to have you with me. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco, for another week. Thanks for tuning in and having a listen as we bring you all sorts of chats from the world of Australian motorsport. Now, my guest on the podcast this week is a guy that I figured out the other day I've known for 25 years. David Hassel's been around Australian motorsport media for, well, many more years than 25. He brings an amazing amount of experience, stories, and insight to the sport. Over the journey, he's held some really strong positions in the motorsport media. He was the editor of Auto Action, he was the founding editor of Motorsport News and of Australian Motor Racing Magazine, among a whole pile of other job titles and credits. Now, he's raced, he's done a bit lately too as well in terms of racing at the Bathurst Six Hour, but I wanted to sit down with Hass and talk about how things have changed in the media and how his experience and knowledge of the media over time has put him into some interesting places along the journey. There's lots to chat about. I really enjoyed sitting down and having this chat with a guy who made a phone call to me 25 years ago this year when I wrote a letter to Motorsport News. We'll talk about that in this podcast. It's someone that you don't really ever hear from. It's someone new, someone unique with their own story to tell. And that's exactly why I wanted to get Hass on the podcast. If you haven't heard of David Hassel before this podcast, you'll definitely after this one. This is a good chat. Settle back, relax and enjoy David Hassel on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. David Hassel, congratulations. Uh, It's the 25th anniversary of you and I knowing one another. Can you believe this? You were such a young lad. I know, I know. And uh, and you reminded me of me at the same age <laughs> when I was sixteen and starting out, and I was a bit you know, young and geeky and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, that's that's really surprising. It, yeah. So it was twenty five years ago, nineteen ninety seven, that I wrote a letter to Motorsport News Magazine saying something along the lines of, "Hello, my name's Aaron, and I live in Ballarat, and." Um, I'm 16 and I'd like to be a racing journalist. Tell me, what should I do? And you called up and rang up uh, my house in Ballarat and we had a chat and uh, the next thing I knew I was at Calder Park uh, for the first round of the Touring Cars uh, reporting on the Formula Ford support race. So Garth Tander, Marcus Ambrose and Todd Kelly were the three, the first three people that I met that night. After Phil Brennigan, who was the assistant editor at Motorsport News at the time, who sort of sent me on my way down to the paddock and away I went and we've been going ever since. So this is really cool that we can sit down and not just talk about the Motorsport News era but also um, your awesome time in the sport because you've had a, a proximity to it as a, a media man in all sorts of roles a, along the way. But we're very similar in our, just as you said, in our sort of, how we got into it and what we did and we were into it as as youngsters but what what fueled your motorsport passion and, and interest that's a good question and i thought about it before i was coming in here and i was thinking how how did that happen because i don't have a strong motorsport background it's not like my parents were into it or anything like that you know my dad didn't even get his license until he was probably 40 um 
and I thought about it. My granddad raced a little bit of speedway. He raced a three-quarter midget, a TQ, but he only I only saw him race once, so that wasn't a strong thing. I think I got a slot car set, a Scar Electric set, you know, like all young boys did in yeah, those days. Well, I had AFX, but, you know, same thing. Same different thing. era, yeah, different era. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was influential and, and I think my granddad was trying to encourage my brother to get involved in motorsport because he gave him a copy of Automobile Year for Christmas one year. And I remember it distinctly and I think I poured over it considerably more than my brother <laughs> did. It was nineteen, yeah, late 1967, so it was when Denny Holm won the World Championship. Fantastic shot of Denny flying over the hump at the Nürburgring oh, yeah, on the I've cover. Awesome. Yeah. So I just poured over that. And then um, in February 68, uh, the ABC showed, in black and white of course, uh, the Tasman race at Sandown, which was a very famous race, Jim Clark and Chris Amon battling, swapping the lead, doing all that sort of thing. I was utterly, utterly mesmerised by this race. And the following morning went out, went to the news agent, bought my first copy of Racing Car News and read every word of it and, uh, you know, it all started from there. And this is 1968? Yep. And then when do you get your first byline in Racing Car News? A couple of years later? Only, yeah, only uh, three years later. So, yeah, 68, I'm about to turn 13. Um and I, I sent a couple of letters, like oh, like a lot of familiar. A lot of people, yeah, they yeah. probably appeared alongside Ken Bright and yeah, yeah, Mike yeah. Borland and people like that who also used to write letters. So, but as a young teenager, to have that in print and see my name and all that sort of that was kind of intoxicating. And and my mum worked in a in a the college press at Swinburne, so I'd had holidays there and you know, playing around with typewriters and the printing presses running. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, well, this that's is all, all coming together. That's all sort of gone into my brain. And even my dad worked in a, at the SEC, but he was printing um, blueprints, plans and that sort of thing. So, you know, he'd, he'd process photos. So we had photos in the house. I'm, I'm thinking of all these elements that have come together. Um, so I've written the letters and I've, and I've thought the same as you. Oh, you know, it'd be, be good to be a writer. Um and the uh, motor racing show was on uh, that Jim Abbott ran at the exhibition buildings and Racing Car News had a stand there and the man manning the stand was a guy called Peter Werrett mm-hmm. who was the assistant editor to Max Stahl at Racing Car News. So I barreled up to him, you know, a bit like you, hello, mister. <laughs> you know, how, I'm laughing how because become... I know it so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you become a, motoring, a motorsport rider? And um, he told me later that, he, you know, he had this sort of thing numerous times, people would say to him, the same sort of thing. But he said he, he sort of sensed something in me that was a bit more serious or something about it, I don't know. He said, look, write me a letter. You know, I, I can't do anything now. Write me a letter at Racing Car News. So I, I wrote that. And he was obviously wanting to see if I could actually write. Well, one uh, thing to be... Keen, passionate, mm. exuberant. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing to actually get it or have. And I've seen a lot of them over the years where I really want to do this, I really like to do this, I really like it. But the, you've got it, it, it's hard to describe. Yeah. It's like maybe it's a bit like what makes a really great racing driver or someone that really clicks into the media stuff that mm. there's just that intangible element that they've got a hunger. 
bit of a nose for news, a bit of awareness of the world and what's around, yep. a bit of inquisitiveness naturally. And, and be to able to put be, it together. And then be able to actually make it make sense. Put it into a, a sentence, a paragraph, a story that, that, that flows that, mm. that, that all makes sense. Mm. And that's what he did after I wrote to him the first time. He saw something, wrote back, said, write me a story, anything, doesn't matter what it is, you know, two pages. So I wrote something about Norm Beachy. And again, he wrote back and just said, okay, this is how you lay it out, you know, this is how you put the page numbers and all, all of that basic sort of stuff. And um, get in touch with our Melbourne editor, Doug Hicks, and we'll get you to do something. So got in touch with Doug and next thing I know, I'm at Lakeland Hill Climb at uh, 16 years of age, reporting on it and Brock was there and Paul the, England. This is a, a 30 era. Uh, no, no, early HDT era. Right. So Holden Dealer team with the series production XU1. Yep. So we're talking six, uh, 71. Yep. 71, yeah, it was 25, uh, 50 years not long ago. Yeah. Um, so, that I, yeah, I wrote that story up. I can still, I could probably even recite the first paragraph. Go on, have a crack. No, no, I'm not going <laughs> to do that. It was... It was yeah, a 16-year-old's attempt at creative writing. Right, trying to create a little bit of... Yeah, it was the hills come alive kind, yeah, right. kind of stuff. It was a bit sound of music -y. So is that the first place that you meet yep. Brock? I don't know. I'm, I should know. Uh, you know, it should be one of those things that are etched in your brain. Oh, you know, the first time I met Peter Brock. And I don't remember, to be honest. I don't think I would have had the guts to speak to him at that time. I certainly wouldn't have spoken to Harry. <laughs> I don't think I ever spoke to Harry. <laughs> Um, so no, I don't. I don't remember the first time I spoke to Brock, but it, I went from doing hill climbs to rally cross. So there was a lot of Brock mm. around, and I would have I would have spoken to him at some stage, and mm. uh, and it all went from there. Speaking of rally cross, mm. there was a day at Calder, and I've seen the vision. We will run it on our V8 Sleuth socials and on the website. I don't think it's really been seen around the place. But tell me about the day that you found yourself actually involved in a way in rally cross that you. Probably shouldn't have or would have rather not to. Yeah, I was run over by Peter Jansen. <laughs> I was trying not to say it that bluntly. but Well, there's no other way of saying it. And, and I don't think Peter Jansen has seen this footage. Um, it, it just It's popped up in the last couple of years. Uh, it was unearthed by somebody who's involved in historic motorsport. And anyway, they, they found this footage and, yes... Um, so at the Calder Rallycross, if anyone remembers Calder, you got the big Coca-Cola control tower in the middle, and that's where I used to watch the events from because you could see all the way around. Um, and then I'd go across the track at the end of the race to go into the paddock and talk to people and find out what was going on. Pretty normal sort of stuff. Um, and Calder in those days was just a simple um, pit wall or rail, just a fence, a metre high or something. Um, so I'm just standing there waiting for this race to finish and Jansen had a big lose on the, on the final um, water jump and I don't know if he was incapable of making the track but he decided that it might be funny or clever if he finished the race driving down the wrong side of the pit wall, so between the pit wall and the control tower. And I just happened to be standing there and thinking, oh, my God, he's going to hit me. So I started running and he's coming towards me and I'm looking left and right and he's swerving, trying to miss me and, 
he said, you know, finally he caught up with me. So, yeah, he hit me and I slid up the bonnet and then slid down sp- again. It was like Starsky and Hutch stuff. Was he slowing down at this stage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still- yeah, because he stopped. I went up on the bonnet and, and that's when he came to a stop and that's why I slid down onto the ground, still holding my clipboard. Journo through and through. Professional. Good man. Even Can't at, lose those notes. Even at the – I think I was 18 then. I just, just got my licence. So uh, that was pretty exciting and, and after that Jansen used to, you know, sort of take me under his wing a bit and call me his bonnet mascot. <laughs> but the other, the other thing that came out of it is, uh, as I say, I was just 18, just had my licence. So, uh, you know, I, I thought nothing of this. You know, I went to the, to the ambulance and got checked out and I was, I was fine, you know, maybe a scratch or two. Um, but it's pretty spectacular. Um, anyway, I got home and, and mum's greeted me at the door like, you know, I've just come home from war. Oh, are you all right? You all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Why? Oh, apparently the neighbours had seen it. Channel 7 used to film the rally cross and show it a week later and they put it on as the lead story of the news, you know, young journo mowed down at Calder Rally Cross. <laughs> so there's this footage of me getting hit and the neighbour's gone across the road, oh, is David all right? And explained it to mum. Who um, didn't know about it, Who clearly. knew nothing about it. So until I got home at, you know, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock at night, uh, she, she was none the wiser. <laughs> <laughs> it's one hell of a claim to fame. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm glad the footage has resurfaced because I was starting to think it was all happening in my head and it wasn't really that big a deal at all. But, yeah, if you see the footage on the, on the website, you'll, you'll be amazed. We'll, we'll get it out. Actually, you know what, we'll put a link uh, in the show notes to this episode to the website uh, so people yep. can go straight to it to, to check out the video. I was going to ask you a bit more about Brock because you did put together the what, as far as I'm aware, is really the only authorised biography, the Peter Brock story, which was published in 83, I think it was from memory, a hardcover, um, uh, what was it, probably 80, 90, 100-page type, type book, which I'm sure yep. sold its brains out because he was a, a big deal right about there. But that relationship that you guys forged over time, you, you know, you ghost wrote columns for him, you, you, you became quite close with him there in that 70s and, and 80s period. Too. Yeah, he, he was probably my best friend in, in motor racing. Um, I didn't have a lot of close friends in motorsport. Um, I don't know why. Maybe it was it just because that, you're a journo and I think so. Just that professional distance, yeah. Or that you know, it was a very dangerous sport back then as well. So you didn't tend to want to get involved in in things when you know people came to grief. But yeah, Peter and I just hit it off for some reason. Although he was, you know, God, he was nearly ten years older than me. Um, but yeah, he, he, again, he must have seen something worthwhile in me. I remember he tested me a few times. Oh, to, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to to make sure that I was worthy of being part of the the, the Brock, you know, wider family. Um, what did he do? Uh, well, early early days when he was still at the Holden dealer team, and he had a Monaro um, press car or you know company mm. car from Holden, and we had to go somewhere. I don't know, go and get pizzas or driving up to the workshop or something. He said, follow me. So, And I had a little Alfa Romeo, 1600ccs, and he had this five-litre Monaro. And, of course, he's, he's bolted. So I'm driving hard to keep up with him and all that. And I'm pretty sure it was, let's see what this guy's <laughs> got, see if, he can, see if he can keep up. So I must have, I must have passed that test. Uh, and then later on in the early 80s, I think, with the HDT Commodores, 
um, he, he grabbed me and, and um, said, oh, you know, we're trying something this weekend. I, you, know, you reckon you can guess what it is? Now, as luck would have it, I happened, you know, 10 minutes earlier, I happened to have seen them pushing the car back into the, into the garage in the paddock and I noticed the inside back wheel skipping a little as they, as they pushed it in. So I said, oh, I reckon you've got a locked diff. And, you know, you know, Brock's like, oh, hassle. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, and sure enough, it was that. And, and again, I thought, okay, yeah, he's, he's just just testing me, just testing me. Oh, well, you passed. And then the early days of uh, when we launched Australian Motor Racing Magazine and, and Peter agreed to do the TV ads, which we recorded in Ballarat, um, whatever, 81 that would have been, um, and – he, he agreed to do it, so I went and picked him up from the dealer team in North Melbourne and he, you know, he said, oh, you know, we'll take one of the, one of the dealer team, <clears throat> one of the HDT cars. Um, you drive. Oh, my God, you know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm driving Peter Brock. <laughs> in one of his cars. And we're running late and I'm oh, thinking, oh, my God, if the police pull us over and, you know, it'll be, it'll be the old, who do you think you are, Peter Brock? And I said, no, but the bloke next to me is. <laughs> Um, so yes, uh, got involved with with Peter doing doing columns and stuff. You know, Plastic was was doing them, and he was obviously too busy to do. Which is Tim Pemberton, who was the, the long time PR guy for Correct. for PB and dealer team and Holden and Holden mm. Motorsport. And yeah, I spent a couple of years working with him, and we lost him. You know, a matter of a couple of months ago. Just recently, so, yeah, yeah, very yeah, sad. Yeah. Uh, Plastic was a great a great figure. But yeah, so he, well, the pair of them trusted me to, to do the ghostwriting with the columns that appeared all over Australia. And we should explain to people who who maybe aren't really haven't been as exposed to the media side of the sport. So when we say ghostwriting, what we're talking about is, uh, you know, if you read a Peter Brock column in a newspaper or a magazine in the seventies or eighties, yep. basically you wrote it, you talked to him to get the the gist of it, you crafted it, made it sound Brock, made it add up, made it fit the yep. word length, get it approved, send it. That's yep. ghostwriting. Yeah. And you've got to obviously have a good relationship with the person and the person has to have a good relationship with you to trust that you're going to do the job and it just works seamlessly. I was working in the city doing magazines and stuff at, at the age um, and they were in Port, uh, North Melbourne at that stage so, you know, it was just a mile up the road. So, yeah, I'd jump in the car, whiz up there, What's happening, Brock? And he'd waffle on for a few minutes. I'd take notes, go away, write it up. Mm. Yeah, job done. Yeah. Is there a story that I remember reading somewhere along the line when he was going to Europe to race that BMW that he, he ran at Le Mans and he, he raced a couple of times in, in other races overseas? Yeah. Have I read that story or am I remembering it right that he was running late to the airport and you're in the car with him to the point where you're dangling his helmet out the window trying to make yeah. the paint dry on it. Yep. True story? True story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he was he was out of control in those days. He, he wasn't – he didn't have a partner and, he, you know, he, he was hanging out with uh, the Spear, Grant Steers, his best mate from Holden, um, and they lived in a, this little house in Burwood called the Bungalow because the lounge room wall had a curve in it, like a – yeah – like, like a, a caravan. Anyway, uh, he, he was out of control. The night before, I think we were there, you know, having a bit of a send-off and he still hadn't packed. So my wife said, oh, for God's sake, you know, where's your suitcase? You know, throw some clothes in. And we went out the next day um, 
to the uh, the Bandura Bistro, his his little workshop out in Bandura, and we went to the airport from there. But he he hadn't had time to get the blood group uh, painted on on his helmet. And I'd race slot cars and painted them up and models and all that sort of thing. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I all so it wasn't the whole helmet. It was just the it was just the blood group yeah. on the side. So I painted whatever it is, you know, O positive. And um, yeah, to, to get it to dry in time, rushing out to the airport, I, I dangled it out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that is true. It's a perfect story that. The real world to Brock and the the normal day to day stuff. He just struggled with all that. He just wasn't he wasn't a detail type of guy. He just, yeah. particularly that era, as you say, was just living it until until Bevo came along and got him organised. He was he was just yeah he was just this crazy single guy that, as I say, he was ten years older than me. But he you know we were basically the same age. Mm-hmm. He was very immature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me about how that. I mean, there's a bazillion Brock books over the journey, both before and after yours. Uh, how did that come to be? Clearly, that level of trust was there. Yep. Uh, that, but it was at a time when that publisher, I think, that you did that one in mm-hmm. with, were doing an alternate Bathurst book to the one that became the Great Race book that yep. became Chevron. Yep. Um, they were doing their own, like it was called Race Year, it was like a motor racing yearbook. So they were yep. a thinner version, but they're still, I mean, we've got them in the office here, mm. but they were, they were pretty prolific group of books at the time, so I guess the opportunity to do a Brock book was a standout one. Yeah, yeah, a guy called Gary Spark was the publisher, and he was a cricket photographer, and through the cricket got to know uh, Ray Baxter from Mazda, and they did that Ma- that Moffat RX-7 book, yep, yep. so I think that was the first motor racing book, and then he was planning to do this Bathurst book, just at about the time, the first Bathurst book, at about the time I went freelance. You know, I was doing the Brock columns, I was doing press releases for Calder and I thought, oh, that's a good basis for freelance. So uh, I ended up saying to Gary, you know, you need to fix this. It needs to be written. Um, So long story short, I I wrote the stories for it. We put it together uh, and then because of the relationship with Brock, I thought, oh, you should do a book on Brock. Um, Peter said, yep, no worries. Um, so, yeah, did lots of interview sessions and sat at home on the typewriter <laughs> uh, writing this book. And I think, yeah, I think it was 112 pages. Um, and Gary printed 10,000 copies, which sold out. And he also did 10,000 copies for Holden. And they went on the front seat of 10,000 new Holdens that people had bought. So, yeah, 20,000 books. It was a big amount. Books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I could be selling 20,000 books right now of any of ours, we'd be very, very happy. It would be nice. We might not be here for the next couple of years because we may have bought an island somewhere if we could sell that <laughs> many books. But uh, um, And around that time, so you've you've done your racing car and new stuff, but you, you became the editor of Auto Action magazine at 22. Uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd been there for a few years before that. Um, my first job was at the Light Car Club, um, which – Doug Hicks, again, organised for me. He started Competition Communicator, if you're familiar with that. And uh, that was a monthly club magazine and, and it doubled up as the race program for Sandown. Um, but I only did that for maybe a year and um, Paul Harrington, who was the editor of Auto, Auto Action, um, recruited me to work on Motor Manual, which didn't last long, so I became the editor of Auto Action instead. So I was assistant editor and I became the advertising manager and I wrote columns and 
race reports and all of that. Um, and then Paul became the editor of Motor Manual. Um, so, yeah, Len Shaw pulled me into the office and said, uh, how would you like to be the editor of Auto Action? Yep, no worries, I'll <laughs> give it a crack. Because I'd done it while Paul was on holidays at mm. various times, so I knew what to do mm. somehow. I mean, and, and it was a staff of one, you've got to recall. Mm. Auto Action had, had an ad rep and an editor. That was it. And you did everything. You wrote all the captions, all the headlines, did the layouts. It was crazy. And, it, and at 22... grounding, just, though. But oh, yeah. It sets you up. It sets yep. you up. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to have a visual thing as well. It wasn't just sitting there, you know, ringing Alan Moffat saying, hey, what's new? Um, you know, you had to do all the layouts and stuff and, and I don't know how I got that. No <laughs> idea. But, yeah, continued to do it for the rest of my life. And, and what I find so interesting now is that, that straddling of... You look at right now. So as we're recording this podcast, there's a Townsville supercar round going on this weekend. So a journalist will be on the ground or they could even be at home watching it on TV because it's live and you get all the sessions and all that sort of stuff. They write their report, they load it to the website, they go bang, they load a social media link, Mm. bang, traffic, job done. Not so easy in 1981, 23, whatever it was, at auto action. So the process of getting a story to a magazine. Are we talking couriers and typed out pages being retyped? Or yep. How on earth did it work back then? Well, it was exactly that. So, you know, your inter- interstate uh, reporters, we didn't travel in those days. You'd, you'd have, you know, I had Peter McKay or someone in Sydney doing a race report. And, yes, they'd type it up and um, they'd have to get it down to the uh, local ANSET agent or whoever it was uh, and, and stick it on an aeroplane and I'd have to go and pick it up in Franklin Street in the city um, and send it off to the printers to be typeset and laid out and all those sort of things. So, yeah, it was all hard copy and photo prints that you'd, you'd get in the mail. Uh, quite yeah, a different world. take it on their phone, ping, send it through, bang, it's online and around the world in about Instant. three minutes. yeah. It's incredible. Um, you know, Grand Prix. I, I, I would find out who won a Grand Prix by buying the Thursday Herald newspaper, <laughs> and there'd be a report from Douglas Armstrong. It may have even been a week and a half after the race for all I, all I remember. Mm. But you know, time time had a different value in those days. Mm. It wasn't it wasn't all instant now. Like if you haven't seen the result of a race the moment it happens, then you're off the pace. Mm. Mm. It's funny how. But at the core of all of this, has that stuff's changed, but the whole good journalism hasn't. How you get a story, how you build contacts, how you get the trust, how you have a sniff that there's something going on somewhere, mm. somehow, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it and there's a few roadblocks for me, but I know someone over here that can give me that bit of the puzzle and I know <laughs> someone over here. The art form's still there. Does that still happen? It still happens. Because yeah, you don't see it much on the news sites. Well, you might have to read V8 Sleuth a little more in the upcoming months because we might be about to really step it up. Ooh, break Ooh, some news. Why not? Why yeah, not? good stuff. Yeah, I thought this will appeal to you. You'll yeah, love this. absolutely. Did you ever – what were some of the – and we'll, we'll touch on the motorsport news era soon because there's a, there's a bunch of stuff to talk about there, but are there any stories that stand out that were the, oh, yeah, that was a big breaking one I got back in the day? Or sometimes you get them wrong too or sometimes you get led mm. down a path where you think it's right, doesn't turn out to be right. Were there any – any tetchy situations in in the up? auto action or yeah, motorsport or, news well, days? Probably more of the auto action. We'll, we'll cover the motorsport news stuff a little bit later. But yeah, well, most most of the 
big breaking news, I think, was probably motorsport news days. Mm. I, you know, we were really on our game then. Mm. Um, when I was doing auto action, I was a bit younger. But um, And the big thing then was the RX-7 affair mm. with, with Moffat. And, um, I mean, Moffat and I weren't particularly close and I guess the association with Brock didn't help and, you know, Moffat was another 10 years older probably again. Um, but... For some reason, I, I sort of latched onto the RX-7 thing and thought this was something worth pushing. And I Pushing for it? For it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote editorials and put it on the front page and was pushing cams and all that sort of thing. I, I think I really helped get the RX-7, uh, the peripheral port thing, over the line, to be honest. Mm. Um, so that was a big thing. But, yeah, Moffat and I... Uh, like he threatened to sue me a couple of times. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah what for? <clears throat> that was pretty normal in those Just days. Just another day at the office. Yeah. I don't know, things that I'd written. I think I said, you know, I quoted Pauline and about the Capri running narrow wheels or wider wheels or something. Anyway, though, I, you know, you'd get this solicitor's message saying you have harmed our client's reputation and generally it was just a just an excuse to get a bit of a retraction or an explanation of something. Moff was pretty quick to get the get the lawyers on the case. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I think I earned some brownie points with him with the RX seven thing. I don't remember getting things wrong terribly often. I mm. was I was pretty careful and mm. had pretty good sources. Mm. You just that's what we that's what you did in those days. You just talked to lots of people and had people that you trusted. Mm. Mm. It's it's a very yeah, so many, so many of the elements are the same, but so many the way that it comes out now is <coughs> the really different part. Uh, you touched on it before; um, it's a bit overlooked, but I reckon it's it's actually an important part of Australia's motorsport media history. Australian Motor Racing mm. magazine. You mentioned it earlier. Mm. I think it only ran for about four or so years in the early mm. to mid eighties. But think of a monthly feature based mag, which. That's kind of what it was. Yep. And I think if you go back and look at it, it stands up pretty well. Yeah, well, I did auto action from, I think it was late 77. Uh, and I did it for three or four years before David Siegel took over. And after doing everything, kind of repeating yourself, you know, I was looking for a new challenge. I was in my 20s. And I had this idea for a monthly magazine. I'd seen a, I'd seen a tennis magazine and it was printed in Australia and it had glossy paper and it had colour in it. And I thought, Ooh. wow, you know, this was at a time race car news and checkered flag was all, you know, it was just printed on newsprint and black and white and it was, they were horrible. And I thought, I wonder how they do this. So I went off to the printers. To, I found out who the printers were and spoke to them and got a quote and went into my boss and said, okay, here's the deal. I want to do a magazine like this. This is how much it would cost to print. So don't give me any crap about, oh, no, we can't afford it. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, all right, give it a crack. So I started up Australian Motor Racing and, and yeah, had all these ideas of quality and interviews and artwork, you know, like Road and Track used to have in the day. Um, so, you know, I just could have pinched ideas from different magazines. And, you know, I used to read golf magazines and, all, you know, rock and roll magazines and all sorts of stuff. So my, my influences were very broad. And uh, I, I wanted a real quality magazine, and um, I only did it for a year and a half or so. But uh, yeah, those those eighteen or twenty issues that I did, very very proud of them. Mm. You know, I got Stony to do serious drawings rather you than know, 
funny rather than just cartoons. Yeah. I mean, he did cartoons as well. He did these beautiful cartoons with no captions. So, so it was a bit of a new skill for him. And I got him to do these portraits of drivers. I remember them, yeah. Yeah. And he's a really, really good artist as well as a good cartoonist and a top bloke. Mm. So, you know, sort of broke a lot of new ground. Mm. Unfortunately, the subsequent ed- editors didn't kind of get the idea and, you know, suddenly there were girls in bikinis and... I remember that bit too. Oh, you would have at that age. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it, it got off the rails. Uh, ironically, when I went back to the Age magazine's division as a, in a management position, I was the one who killed off Australian Motor Racing magazine. So you so inspired I, it and killed it. Yeah, that's so right. It's, full stopped it completely. It's like saying to your kids, you know, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you... After there, there was a bit of time with Cams as well as a you know a bit of a media liaison yep. kind of role. Late eighties, the the sport commercial is really. I mean, the eighties were huge for motorsport in Australia when you when you think about it. The Adelaide Grand Prix fires up, uh, the World Endurance Championship to Sandown twice, which you know, didn't quite go so yep. good. Bathurst's booming commercially and really growing off the back of the the broadcast and it becomes a world touring car around it, it sort of has its eyes open to the world and the world's mm-hmm. eyes open to it. Yep. Uh, the 500cc bikes at Phillip Island, 89, what a decade of, yep. of the sport. And, and I guess that role probably came apart because of the growth of the sport. Absolutely. Yeah, Cam, I think Cam's wanted a media manager of some sort. They, you know, as you say, the sport was growing. And Shell came on board to sponsor the Australian Touring Car Championship. And that was a massive thing for them to have a, a major sponsor. It was the first time it had happened. So part of the deal with Shell was to provide enough money to hire uh, a media manager to go along to all the rounds and look after the media, do press conferences and all that sort of thing. I happened to, I happened to go freelance at about the same time. I happened to be very good friends with John Keefe from CAMS because we lived in the Danny Nongs and you know, there was a bit of a motorsport mafia up in the Danny Nongs <laughs> at that time. Um, and John said, "You know, would you would you like to do this?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely. Give it give it a crack." So, uh, yeah, the the Shell Australian Touring Car Championship kicked off, and we did press conferences on the Friday for the for the local media to come along, and uh, and on Saturday, and then of course the post race stuff on Sunday, and it kind of grew. Like they they insisted all the drivers attend these press conferences. So they had to have it in a big tent because you'd have, you know, 20 drivers all lined up on the plastic chairs um, and you'd get whoop, you'd get the um, the local media come along, you know, the reporter for the Launceston Examiner or whatever the case may be, and they didn't know what to ask. So I would tend to ask the questions and, and pass the microphone around and it, it just grew and grew and I'd just ask more and more questions <laughs> and then Tom Smith from Shell said, oh, you know, we, we should, uh, you know, it's a bit, bit poor. You've got three journos and 20 drivers. You know, why don't we let the general public in? So they let the general public in. And it, it just developed into this show. Um, you'd have hundreds of fans and, and all the drivers. And, of course, the drivers lit up with a bit of an audience as well, not just talking to the, uh, the examiner reporter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did that for, for three years. Did that feel like a bit of a crossing to the evil side? Yeah. Where you have to put down the yeah. the pen and the pad and you're kind of in PR media relations. I, yeah. I mean, I did it too. I, I get yeah. 
Yeah. But you're still being a journalist. You're still mm. you're still asking questions. In fact, you're asking the same questions you'd be asking if you're a journo and, and getting to the bottom of things and writing reports. And I used to do radio reports as well for Wally Weissel. Yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. We had Wally on the pod earlier in the I year. know, yeah. yeah. That was great to hear him. Uh, good old Wall. Um, so, yeah, I think he was getting busy back home and, and, and he said, oh, Hassel, you know, would you do these reports for me? Save me having to go down to bloody Simmons Plains or across to Wanneroo? Yeah, mate, I'll give it a crack. So I put on my radio voice and, uh, yeah, you'd do all that. Hi, this is David Hassel for Eon FM at Simmons Plains Raceway. <laughs> <laughs> Without the American accent, though. That was pretty good. I like it. I like it. I like it. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. So the bit that we get to next is the bit that um, I think because we've spoken about this um, personally before we've recorded this, is a, an era of your journalism and motorsport career that I know you're really proud of, mm. and that's motorsport news. Mm. So on the 16th of July, 1993, issue one hits the newsstands. $3.25, the cover price was. I had to look this up. Mm-hmm. It's 42 pages. It's on glossy cover, smooth paper, different to the other magazine. Mm-hmm. Um there's a column from Peter Brock called Idiosyncrasies, which ran for quite some time. Uh, a chance for a lucky reader to win a hot lap at Bathurst with Brock in the Mobile Commodore. Uh, Neil Bates wrote a column. Mike Dudson was the Formula One correspondent at the time. And it's a three, uh, four-way partnership. So how did Motorsport News, the place that gave me my start, yep. how did it start? Because it went up against auto action, mm. which was part of – whatever it's called at the time, ACP, Sign Magazines, you know, the conglomerate of yep. of the Packer world. Yep. Uh, how did this all kick off? Well, I'd been in management at, at the Age Magazines, so I knew – I used to do the budgets and the spreadsheets and all that, so I knew how much money Auto Action made. It was a little gold mine. Chris Lambden had also – like he took over from me after he'd finished as editor of Auto Action. Uh, so he got into management, so he knew as well – Tony Glenn and Bruce Williams both worked there. Um, so they were planning to do another motorsport fortnightly because auto action was fortnightly. And, and there's this obvious opening. If somebody else did a fortnightly on alternate weeks, you could make money mm. and do this great thing. And auto action was a bit of sleep at the wheel, so there was a chance to do it better. At the same time as Chris and the other guys were planning this, I had the same idea, so I was planning to do like an Australian auto sport. Um, I wasn't adv- as advanced as them, but Chris heard about it and rang me up and said, you know, what's, what are you doing? Um, look, why don't we combine forces? You know, he probably realised he was maybe one person short. He wanted to be the manager and he could see me as being a good editor. So, yeah, we just pooled resources. They agreed to give away some of their share in the business to get me in. And, um, yeah, in three months' time, suddenly we produced a magazine. Uh, and it was kind of scary. I hadn't done anything with computers. You know, Chris and the other guys were, were a bit more used to that than I was. So we had to do a computer course. 
um, on on how to do uh, well. What, it was Quark Express in those days, yeah. not InDesign. Yeah. Um, so yeah, did a week in the city doing this course, and at the end of it, they'd say, "Okay, now have you got any questions?" And I'm like, because every day we got in there and the, the computers were all fired up and you know ready to go. I said, "Yeah, how do you turn it on?" <laughs> You didn't show us that bit. No, exactly. Where's the button? That's where my level of computer expertise was. But, you know, suddenly I'm laying out the magazine on a computer, which I'd never done before, Um, and that was the big part of the job. So, yeah, that that first issue was, oh, that was such a big job. (laughs) I I remember sleeping, uh, Bruce Williams had his own office because, you know, ad reps, you don't want to be in the same office as an ad rep because they talk (laughs) loudly and (laughs) at length. Um, I remember, yeah, first issue, uh, slept on the floor because we just worked all night to, to get this magazine done and I just needed a couple of hours sleep and my wife brought the meals and you know, brought in food so that we could eat in the office in South Melbourne. Um, oh, that was a brain snap. And uh, that issue that you were talking about, it's bringing back a few memories about that. Uh, so the, the big feature, the big draw card was an interview with Alan Jones. Uh, I was on pretty good terms with Alan over the years. So I, I'd interviewed Alan. It was this three-page story, two pages up the front half, and then it spilled onto the last page, which was going to be the letters to the editor page, but, of course, we had no letters being <laughs> issue one. <laughs> yeah. So I just spilled the story. To, that was the third page of, of the article. Something happened in the computer system. I don't know what Viv, who was our tech person, computer design person, it, it was fine when it went to the printers. You sound like Brock. It was fine in Thomas Mazira. It was fine when I gave it to you. <laughs> but it's ruined now. The motor, it's kaput. I get into the car, he's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so if you've got issue one of Motorsport News, the, the, the last page, instead of being the continuation of the interview, picks up from the first paragraph of the interview again. And we had to reprint that in the second issue. And the idiosyncrasies column, the Brock one, that's an interesting one too because Brock, you know, I said to Brock, you know, would you do a column for this new magazine? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. But I'm going to write it myself. Oh, so no okay. ghostwriting. No ghostwriting. Okay. And and this is very unusual for a, for a celebrity. But, of course, Brock was on a different plane to the rest of us. And he said, I'll write it as long as I can write about anything I want to and it's not going to be a regular motorsport column. And, you know, he had all these philosophical ideas he wanted to write about. And his first column he titled Idiosyncrasies. It was just going to be the title of that particular column and, you know, the next month or the next issue it would be another topic. And I thought that was his suggestion for the title of the, the column. So we, I'd made it Idiosyncrasies by Peter Brock uh, and it became Idiosyncrasies forever because it was perfect for that column and, and it – he was the most reliable contributor we ever had. It would just come in off the fax machine on a Monday night, um, usually in Bevo's writing because Brock's writing was horrible, but, it, you know, if Bevo was off doing something else, it would come through with Brock's scribble um, on the fax machine and, and that was his column. <laughs> he was a different dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and Motorsport News was a different magazine. Mm-hmm. What was the clear purpose of what you were going to do different from what was already there? How were you going to stand out? Well, we, we wanted real 
real journalism, you know, good good reporting, news breaking. Chris was very good at that. He was very good at getting on the phones and ringing around and I was very good at sort of being a bit more backroom and the contacts that we had were fantastic. Um, and, yeah, we wanted something that looked good. It didn't just look crap and it was on good paper and had good feature stories and, uh, again, good quality. All the things that culminated from our, our mutual experiences. We'd been around the business a long time and this was the chance to do something really, really good. And it just took off. Mm. Um, you know, we couldn't believe it, to be honest. And, you know, I had a crisis confidence after the first issue, I'd missed, I must admit. Um, you know, Bruce, who, who now publishes Auto Action, um, as you know, speaks his mind. He does, And so we did this first issue, absolutely busted our buns just to get it done, Uh, learning everything to do, Um, and it came out and it had this glitch in it and Bruce was grumpy and, you know, we had a bit of a debrief and um, and he said, what do you think of of it, Bruce? I think it looks like shit. (laughs) Oh, no. Thanks for your support. Oh, my God, we just killed ourselves. Um, and I remember, I remember going around to, to Chris's house. And I rang him up and said, "I've got to talk to you. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm cut out for this." After issue one. After issue one, yeah, I was just, I was cooked um, emotionally. And anyway, he he, he placated me. Oh, look, it's all right. Don't he worry. Everything, everything will be fine. And it was just a momentary. And it was a lot of money then. I had a wife and kids, and you know, would put up tens of thousands of dollars each to fund this thing. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a disaster. What am I doing? What was I thinking? Um, but yeah, it all it all worked out beautifully, and and we had an overdraft organised. Never needed it. Um, we just used the the seed money, and uh, it was profitable. Basically, issue one mm. made money. Wow. Um, yeah, it was quite extraordinary, quite extraordinary. And then, of course, Auto Action was sold to Packer, to Kerry Packer, uh, ACP. And Phil Scott was the – he'd moved up into management and he was the, you know, the chief rooster up in Sydney. Uh, he he rang Chris and, you know, said, right, you know, what would it take to, for you to sell out to us? We're going to go weekly. We're going to crush you. You should sell out to us now. Uh, you know, we've got all the money. You've got no chance against us and all this sort of stuff. So this is only after a few months of operating. So you're clearly a threat if they're yeah, ringing after a few months, absolutely. not a few years, yep. a couple of months. And it makes sense for them. They think, okay, we can buy out this startup for a relatively small amount of money, clear Before the decks, gets, we can yeah. go weekly, have a clear run, we'll just dominate the market and make even more money. Mm. Um, and part of the deal, of course, we'd have to go and work in the in the business. Um, uh, so we had a bit of a panic. Oh, my God, what's going to happen here? Um, had a meeting... And I said to Chris, you know, how, how much are we making? You know, give us give us a summary of, of how much we're making. And when are they planning to go weekly? Oh, okay, you know, four or five months' time. If we really put our heads down and pedal like hell, we could make as much money in that five months as what they're offering us. So financially, we're just as well off. And if they do crush us, we can just walk away from it we're, we're fine. We've we've made our money and we don't have to go and work for, you know, those mongrels in Sydney. <laughs> um, so that's what we did. So we, we pressed on, Auto Action went weekly, changed their format to – they weren't really breaking news. They, they went into this format of, 
you know, quoting drivers. Oh yes, I can. I'm gonna win. I can bounce back. We can win. We can. We can win Bathurst. Well, he's a uh, he's a body shell that's unpainted, but it's the new secret weapon car. Yeah, yeah. That got a good run in the mid nineties. Whereas we were doing proper stories, you know, because we worked hard at it. You know, um, Chris had a, you know, developed the relationship with Larco, for example, just as, as something off the top of my head, and was talking to him the whole time about you know, what he was doing and so we knew about his project to, get, to, to build a V8s, Falcon, to go V8s yep. um, and, and and got his confidence because we didn't we didn't blow stories. So we sat on it, sat on it, sat on it, got our artist Bernie Walsh to do a drawing of a Falcon in Mitre 10 colours and, and when the time came, Larko said, yep, go for it and we stuck that on the cover. So, you know, it was good, solid stories. You know, Brock returning to Holden Racing Team was, was a say, big story. There were, there were two big ones, weren't they, that really made you in the first yeah. month first. or two or three was that the Grand Prix was going to Albert Park yep. and that Brock was going back to the factory Holden Correct. Team to go to yep. HRT. And they broke in the very infant stage of MN, which yep. really sent you on your way. And, and we got a lot of flack over both of those stories, you know, people just saying, oh, you guys, you know, you're just making shit up and, um, yeah, and the Albert Park one, we got through um, Tony Glynn. Yeah, t- tell me uh, some more. How, so how, that's, that's a mammoth story. It was, oh, it was mighty because there was not even a whisper of this um, happening. You know, everyone thought it was in Adelaide for life. Mm. Um, Tony had a – I shouldn't give too much away, <laughs> but, it, but a mate of his was an engineer – and basically said, this is what's happening. And he was involved with all the, all the work behind the scenes to, to turn it into a Grand Prix track again, Albert Park. Ironically, our office was like 200 metres. In South Melbourne. In, yeah, this is when we were in South Melbourne, mm. in Stead Street. So it was across the road from, from the Albert Park track. So, you know, we, we knew and, and, you know, this, you know, Tony was, yeah, it's, look, it's definitely happening. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, this is huge. What do I do with this? Um, and I rang John, um, what's his name, Ron Walker. Mm. Uh, rang Ron Walker, somehow got onto him, who was the mayor of Melbourne at the time. And he was behind the whole project, bit of a petrol head. And um, he didn't say no. You know, he's a, he's a politician, so he was able to, you know, chat, chat, chat and, and sort of talk around it. But he didn't say no. And I thought, okay, well, we're, we're going to run this story. Um, so I ran it, did the headline, um, something, I forget what it was, but I put it, at the last minute I put a question mark on it. Instead of saying Just Grand to Prix to Albert Park. Soften it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I made it Grand Prix to Albert Park question mark. I shouldn't have, but I did. Um, and yeah, we ran the story, and, and of course, everybody's like, you know, you've got to be kidding. Um, but all the daily newspapers picked it up, and suddenly the phone's ringing, and these journos from the, the, the Herald Sun and all the rest of it saying, you know, what's the story here? Um, and it all took off. And the Brock one, that was just courtesy of Brock, that was just the personal relationship. He, uh, he rang me one Monday night. Um, I'm on deadlines in the office at you know eight o'clock at night or something or other tapping away, and Brock says um, oh, I'm going back to Holden Racing Team, which at the time was absolutely fanciful. Again, like Brock and Holden were done, cooked. 
Um, but he said, no, it's definitely, you know, I've been talking to Creno, the deal's done, you can write it, yeah, absolutely, no problem at all. Um, again, I put a question mark on it, Brock for HRT question mark, and uh, I think it was the week before Adelaide Grand Prix, so it would have been late 93. Three, yeah. Um, and I've turned up in Adelaide in the press room and everybody's, ah, oh, you plastic. Ah, oh, hassle. What, what's this crap about Brock? It'll never happen. You guys will do anything for a story. Plastic, it's going to happen. And uh, they poo-pooed it, auto action, ran stories, poo-pooing it. You know, it was just like that. And then, of course, <laughs> came to pass. And that's one of the things, too, over the, the journey for those in the journalism, in the motor racing. But if you're a magazine reader and now a website reader, sometimes sometimes it's that question mark, it's that softening, it's that led to believe thought because you've got to protect the source. You've got yeah. to take that last 20% off the story to get it to happen. Yep. There's all those little nuances of being a journalist and a reporter and in the media. Yep. You're always a little bit compromised. You can never just go flat stick all mm. the time because then people won't talk to you or yep. then they won't have your confidence. So And you lose your credibility. Yeah. If if you don't cover yourself off, if you just go, okay, I'm going to put it out there, you know, whatever the case may be, um, if you get it wrong, you, you lose your credibility and the readers don't. So the next time you're on a story and say something's definitely happening, people go, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's old school. It's old school journalism but – you know, a question mark's a very powerful thing and if there is a 20% doubt, mm. why not cover yourself? It, it mm. doesn't lessen the story. You still raise – you still got the guts of what it is. Yeah. But it's that this is going to happen. Yep. We believe it's about to happen. It hasn't happened mm. but you've got enough in the bank yeah. positivity-wise that you go, yep, sources are good enough. I've got enough of the sniff of this. Yeah. I'm confident enough to go with it. And – if I've got it wrong, it won't have been for a lack of trying. Yeah, exactly. And you've, I, you've I, covered I, yourself, and but it's still a strong enough story on its own anyway. Still got an award for it, so that was nice. <laughs> must have been okay then. That must have been all right. <laughs> so the magazine, and and we're talking a, a fair bit about motorsport news because of, I mean, mm. I've got a great connection mm. to it. It's now a part of our portfolio here at V8 Sleuth as well and A&Y yep. Media. Um but I think it needs more credit for what it achieved mm. over its time. And, and those few stories there that were in the first, I don't know, five issues, six issues. Certainly um, the first year. Did yeah. anyone want to sue you or go after you in the first six months? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was another little moment. Uh, if you remember John Trimble. Yeah, who, from, who passed away this year, John Trimble. Oh, yeah. okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, so he, he ran a Commodore in the Touring Car Championship. Daily Planet Car. Sponsored yeah, by yeah. the Daily Planet. And yep. he, was, he was, you know, a bit of a notable character because of that, you know. He was a brothel owner. Mm. Um, and he was actually John Trimboli uh, and changed his name to make it a bit more palatable, mm. take, him, take him off the radar. But he, he was just another racer to us, you know. Mm. It, was, it was no big deal. And he uh, he had a car. I'm not sure what the history of the car is. You uh, could probably tell car. me. It was a Larry car. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just one of those characters, and and he did a deal with Gricey to Gricey wasn't racing, so he was going to sign him up to do Bathurst, and John was going to be co-driver, and you know it was just a good story for us. It was a you know bottom of the lead news page kind of story, no big deal. It was just you know Alan Grice is going to race for. He drove the car at the media day at Bathurst that year. 
Right. Mm. So, you know, there, there was a connection there. Mm. But next thing we know, we get sued by Alan Grice. And it's like, holy crap, what's going on here? You know, you, I've never been sued. I've been threatened to be sued, you know, with letters from Moffat or whoever. Um, but no, we actually got, you know, legal documents and, uh, of course, Chris was panicking and, you know, thinking we think our whole business is going to be wiped out by this, this lawsuit. And after a while, it occurred to me, I said to Chris, you know, Gricey is an MP in Queensland um, and he's being asked about it in the media and all that sort of thing. So he's, he's under the cosh for being associated with a brothel, which is a very sensitive issue at the time. I said, I reckon he's just suing us so that he can stand up in Parliament or in a press conference and say, I'm sorry, I can't answer these questions. It's before the courts. And that's exactly what happened. So this, I said, let's just ignore it. He's obviously using it as a tactic. You know, we won't even waste our time on defending it. It'll probably, nothing will ever come of it. And sure enough, nothing ever did. I, I bumped into Grice, you know, five years ago and said, oh, you know, what's the story with that, uh, that lawsuit? He couldn't even remember it. <laughs> but as far as I know, it's still, it's still out there. <laughs> we, we, we never got a, a legal letter saying our proceedings have been dropped. Uh. But, yeah, we, we worried about our future for mm. a little while, mm. for a day or two. Mm. Mm. Lots going on in that early period of, mm. of that magazine. Um, mm. Great time. Yeah. And then there was a – I mean, when I turned up, it was 97. So by that stage, it's in um, in Caulfield North. Uh, it's growing more people. Yep. There's, you know, Gerald McDonald, a lot of people know from drag racing and supercars was there doing ads, mm-hmm. and Phil Brannigan, yourself, mm-hmm. Chris, Tony Glenn we mentioned, yep. Viv Brumby who um, – for many years afterwards, did Heavy Duty magazine with Correct. her late great husband, uh, Neil. Um, great team. Mm. And, and I think over the journey, I mean, you left in 99, but the place has given over the journey so many people a crack and they're in. It was me, Grant Rowley, Andrew Van Leeuwen, Chris Jordan. Uh, Sean Henshawood before yeah, that. Yeah, he was in the early stages mm. as well. Um, a lot of people, Mark Glenn Denning, who's now in the, in the yeah. US with, with Racer, a lot of people got their start with this magazine, albeit it was after your time there, but we have it to thank for what we do now, yeah. basically. Yeah. Well, you know, I helped get you started. I, helped, I brought Phil Brannigan in. I, one of the reasons I left was I thought Phil deserved a chance of being editor. I didn't know he was going to be there forever and a day. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of him either. <laughs> and I wish I hadn't left. Like, if I have any regrets in my life, it was I should have ridden out Motorsport News for the rest of my life. So you left in February 99. Did I? Yeah, I looked it up. Okay. I want to be on this. But why? Purely to stand aside because you felt that he Bef- needed a crack or were you Before a bit that tired I'd, and jaded? Or? I'd never done anything for more than three years mm. until then. And Motorsport News I'd done for six years. And there's an element of you're just doing the same thing over and over again. You, you know, you're improving. Fortnightly deadline. Yeah, you know. It gets a bit formulaic. Yep. You yep. know, Bathurst preview. What do we do as a preview this year? You, you feel like you're, you're just repeating yourself and treading water and – yeah, I guess I had I had thoughts of grandeur of doing something else without partners. Um, so, you know, I, I wanted to do a motoring magazine. I'd done a bit of general motoring previously uh, and I thought it was a bigger industry and a bigger field and, yeah, 
that, that didn't work out, but gave it a crack. Um, but I should have stayed at Motorsport News because it really was the best years of my life. And as you say, it was such a good team. Mm. That's what really made it. And everybody clicked and gelled and got on and, you know, we had one focus and it was brilliant. Mm. Yeah, Motorsport News is definitely the definitely the highlight of my career, I think. Mm. And yeah. by the way, this career's not done. You've, you've got plenty to do. You've got plenty of freelancing. You've spent a fair bit of time subbing at Wheels and you're at Go yeah. Auto and – um, you've done a lot of stuff for Muscle Car Magazine in, in recent years as well. But I want to ask you too, there's a little book project I heard that you've been working on. And it's sort of, I get a sense it's been bubbling for a little while. Can we, can we let a little bit of the cat out of the bag here? Because I think if our listeners and the wider audience know what you, you might be up to, that there'll be a lot of excitement and a mm. lot of interest about this project. Okay. Well, I hope you're right. Oh, I've got no doubt. No doubt. I hope it'll be the new high watermark of my career. It might be, it might be what I go out on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's a bit of a passion project I've been working on for a number of years, as you know. Um, so I'm writing a book on Alan Moffat's Mustang, which is just the, the greatest car of all time as far as I'm concerned, greatest race car of all time. And, and I think a lot of people my age and even maybe your age would just put that down as being, oh, my God, that car. Um, and I happened to interview Alan in about 2013, so before dementia struck and before his memory faded. Uh, I was going to do a magazine, like a historic motor racing type magazine, um, and I decided that was going to be the cover story of issue one. It was Moffat's Mustang. Um, so I went and interviewed him at length, um, hours and hours of tape. For one reason or another, the magazine didn't happen. So I'd been sitting on this interview for years and had never seen the light of day. And um, talking to my mate Stephen Stockdale, we used to travel interstate a lot and have big, long conversations about all sorts of shit. And um, I said, oh, I should do something with that. I should, I should do a book. He said, yeah, do it, do it, I'll back it. Um, so I thought, yeah, I should do a book um, and use that interview. So Because I, I had this oh, 20,000 words of, of, of interview with Moffat and then I, you know, I, and I know Pauline and Barry Nelson, who was the first East mechanic back in the day. Um, I'd known him for years, like he went to my wedding. Um, so you know, I suddenly thought, oh, they've got all these sort of things in place. Um, and yeah, I've just about finished writing it. Have managed to track down most of the people involved in it, you know, including the guy from Coca Cola oh, wow. who did the original Coke deal. This is full in depth. So this is oh, the yeah. full. This is very sleuthy. This is oh, from yeah. go to woe, every race, every place. This thing's been pretty much nearly everyone who's touched it. Just yep. about. Yeah, absolutely. In, in incredible depth, and and you'd you'd think, how do you write? a book about one car. Oh, pretty easily when it's that car. And, yeah, and there are so many so many stories associated with it. Not only uh, – I mean, Alan is just such a fascinating story in his career, his career before the Mustang, which is – you know, he appeared to come out of nowhere in 1969 to me, but he had this incredible history in America mm-hmm. and um, – and he, and he had a close association with Carcraft, which built the Trans Am Mustangs. And the chief engineer, of course, was Lee Dykstra, who is now married to Pauline Moffat. Mm, mm. So I was able to interview Lee. 
Um, I found I found most of the mechanics from back in the day. Um, Don Gibb, who set up the Coke deal, is still around. Managed to talk to him. So there's all these stories and all these interesting people and who have their own stories to tell. So it's not a it's not a oh and then he went to Warwick Farm and won this race and it's not that kind of book. It's lots of stories and it's the stories of the people who have who have played a role in the development of this absolutely iconic car that that was brilliant from day one that Moffat owned for the entire career. He was the only person who ever drove it. So it's not like it's passed on from from person to person and it's got hacked up and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it's just turned into a, an absolutely fabulous story. So I've got, I don't know, 90,000 words or something um, <laughs> just on this car and, and hopefully not a dull moment and hopefully people will really enjoy it because it's a passion for me. It's a passion project, no question. Can't wait. And dug up some, some awesome photos. I could imagine. And and yeah, Alan or Alan and his management have you know opened up their their archives for me as well. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be good. I can see the smile on your doll. This oh, is something yeah. that's really excited you for a while. To, yeah. So this has been going for what a couple of years. So since that interview in 2013, this has been maybe for the last what four or five years, maybe. Yeah, certainly, certainly been a serious project since 2019. So certainly the last three years mm. uh, is when I've interviewed everybody else. And uh, and luckily they've all got good memories. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a bit of cross referencing and you know, finding out. That, hang yeah. on, no, that, that can't be right. You know, those years cross over. And yeah, and it was like it was such a controversial time. Like Alan was a controversial figure, anyway, and he came across with this new style. You know, like like, like an American driver. You know, aggressive and you know, running into people and all that. So that that had never happened before. It was a very gentlemanly sport until then, uh, even though. Norm Beachy and Bob Jane weren't necessarily gentlemanly, um, and yeah, lots of lot you know suspensions and black flags that he ignored, and uh, yeah, lots of great stories. Look forward to seeing yeah. when it comes through and when it all comes together. And I'm sure, I'm sure whenever that is, I'm sure we can get our hands on a couple to put them in the V8 Sleuth uh, Superstore online to make it available to, uh, we'll, to we'll our look after followers. You. Oh, you're a good man. And good hopefully man. some of your readers might even have some stuff and well, by, all, by all means send it well, in. Well, let's do a little call out here. Yeah. If you've got some photos you took back mm-hmm. in the day, yep. it might be in a paddock somewhere yep. at a racetrack or a car on display somewhere along the line or anything Moffat Mustang related, memorabilia or photos or info or anecdotes or insight, hey, look, send us a note through our website at mm-hmm. v8sleuth.com.au. There's a contact page on our website. So you can fill that out, put your name and you know email address and number in it, fire yep. it through with a message and we'll pass it on to Hass because you never know. Or email me direct even. We'll pass it on to you either way. We'll, okay. We'll sort it out. You never know what else is out there. We'll do a bit of sleuthing on all things Moffat Mustang. Hey, before we go to, you just mentioned before, Stephen Stockdale, a great friend of yours. Yep. Last year, you two got to do something really great. You got to race at Bathurst. You ran in the six-hour in a little uh, Toyota 86. So that's your – I mean, you did a little bit of racing over the journey, Mm. but that's your Bathurst. That's your Bathurst chance, which took a couple of years to to put it all together and get the licences and the signatures. But COVID. COVID in the (laughs) middle of it all too. Um, Tell me about that. It's cool. Bucket list thing. Well, again, one of these many trips that I used to do with Stephen going to historic motor racing meetings, he said, oh, you know, you've really got to do Bathurst before you die. You've got to race at Bathurst. You know, you've been in the sport your whole life. 
And as I say, I'd done a little bit of racing when I was young, but obviously wasn't hungry enough to really pursue it. And yeah, I what raced. Did, what did you do? Did you do some proddy car races? I did. I did the Renault New Star series, which was um, a bit of fun. But the the car was an absolute dog. And I, I, every racing driver has these stories. Um, yeah, Kay Renicar backed. So Peter McKay and Russell Norton in Sydney and a guy called Russell Allen and Auto Action in Melbourne. And Paul Harrington thought he was too old to drive it, so he got me to drive it. And the car was fine. It was an ex-rent-a-car, an ex-K rent-a-car with, you know, squeaking kilometres on the clock or something. And it went fine out at Sandown, but we – or he gave it to somebody to prepare and they did something with the carburetor and it just – uh, the, the floats were wrong or something. So halfway through a corner, it would it was like turning off the ignition. <laughs> so I was at the back of the field looking like an absolute what goose. What field are you running in? Sorry? What, what, what category is this running in? The Renault Newstar. It was all, they were all Renault They're all 12. They're all the same thing. Yeah, you haven't oh, seen right. the famous I photos, seen some of these photos of Peter McKay up on two wheels. I was trying to wipe them from my memory bank. Yeah, yeah. You probably are too, yeah. actually. Yeah. So that, that, all, that all, that was a, a nonsense. And, and then I tried to do a deal to run Formula Ford and... Um, the guy who was going to lease me the car suddenly sold it, so that that ended. So I just raced slot cars and <laughs> radio control cars, and that's where I got my competition out of my system, the competitiveness. And I didn't need to. Like most people have to have to drive in motor racing to be involved with it, whereas I was already involved. It was part of my life. Oh, I've been the same. Oh, yeah, I, exactly. I, you don't, don't, have a go. don't need to race. I, you know, as, a, as a kid, just doing club autocrosses in a Datsun 1600 was learning to drive and yep. having a bit of fun. And I've had a little go in a Formula Ford at Calder one day, but I couldn't fit in it. So yeah. six foot four, not really built for those things. And yeah, I don't think you need to do it to be able to write about it or, mm. or talk about it. But it's a, it's a nice insight to yeah. be able to to bring. So, but slot cars were really great. If I could just yeah, yeah, say yeah. with that, and, and it was great from a creative point of view because I, I built them. Like it wasn't just buying slot cars, I'd design them and I'd come up with concepts and aerodynamics and <laughs> all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But it also with, it comes back to the Brock thing because did you know that there, there was a Peter Brock trophy in 1974 and it was a round of the Australian Slot Car Championships? And in those days, they'd have a Frank Maddox trophy and a Jack Brabham trophy and my mate Kim Axton, who was my best man, ran the quick slot raceway in Melbourne and got around to the Australian Championship and so wanted a driver trophy and uh, you know us being young guys who do, who do we get ah oh, forget all these old buggers you know Peter Brock had just won Bathurst and uh, he said oh you know do you think you could get onto Brocky and ask him if that'd be okay yeah no worries and uh, get a trophy from him Brocky said, "Yeah, yeah, no worries. Oh, come round." Trophy round. from his collection. He said, "Come round to my place." He was oh. living in Kew. This is the Michelle Downs era. Oh, I'm thinking, can we give out a trophy called the Peter Brock Trophy mm. that they'll go and buy from the trophy shop and put the Peter Brock Trophy plaque on the bottom? But yep. no, this is actually a Peter Brock Trophy from his collection. Correct. Oh. From, from under his bed. <laughs> Went round to his place. Oh yeah, so we, you know we're down on our hands and knees, and he's pulling trophies out from under the bed. Oh, what about this one? Oh, that's fantastic, Peter. Yeah, that's perfect. This nice, you know, three column trophy. And it was for, I don't know, fastest lap of the day at Catalina Rallycross or something relatively insignificant, really. And, yeah, we turned that into the Peter Brock Trophy and it's been contested every year since. 
1974, it is still around. No. People, they, they still race for it, the Peter Brock Trophy in slot cars. And is it, does it go with the winner each year and they have to bring yep. it back? Yep. Oh, that's so good. Yep, so it's got a few dents and nicks in it. <laughs> And I think it's got an extra column, you know, an extra level for all there. And I won it. Oh, did you? In 1977, I think. Yeah. I was, that was about the end of my slot car racing days and I, I, I won the Peter Brock Trophy. Love it. And the first say. one in 74, Peter, we ran it on the Australia Day weekend. Peter was racing down at Phillip Island in, I don't know, some Tirana sports sedan and called into Huntingdale on the way home to present the winning trophy, which happened to be Kim Axton, my mate, and I finished second, so we, we got the Cornella. And uh, so Brock arrived with a moustache. What? Yes. So there are photos. I have, have a photo of Peter Brock with a moustache. Rare. Yeah, very rare. He only had it for a couple of weeks <laughs> and thought, no. This he, is not me. He, he looked Mexican already. <laughs> In fact, we used to call him Pedro because he had this swarthy – Complexion, as you know, with Brock. Mm. So yeah, we used to call him Pedro, but no, you look way too Mexican with it, with a big <laughs> Zabata moustache. <laughs> so tell, um, tell me about living your dream at, at Bathurst. Then, so Bathurst, that's cool. At, what, what were you at sixty six last year when you did this? Uh, yeah, You're never too young to go to the mountain. No, no, I was I was thrilled to have done it. So yeah, we went through the whole process with our own car and racing, and but we teamed up with uh, Graham Heath who was a, a, a podium finisher in the six-hour. Um, so we jumped into his car rather than using ours because it didn't have long-range tank or anything like that. And, yeah, just what a thrill. And it was such a weird experience driving out onto Mountain Strait and it was like, oh, my God, I'm actually at Bathurst. What do I do here? <laughs> but it all it all felt so natural, you know. It would be the same with you. Like you've you in your mind you've done so many laps of Bathurst you've watched it so much that it every every part of that track is familiar, and so I just drove around. And, oh yeah, this is you know this is Forest Elbow and this is Skyline and this is McFillamy Park and it, it was all so very familiar. But yeah, what a thrill! And and it proved I wanted to prove something to myself, I guess, that I could do it. And um, yeah, I was close to Graham's times and. Um, so I was pretty pleased with that and didn't put it in the wall. So I was, you know, I was, good. I was a co-driver. So I drove like nine-tenths and was still competitive. And I thought, yep, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> like, do I now spend the rest of my life thinking, oh, I should have become a racing driver? Or do you spend your life going, oh, well, we'll do it again next year then? Yeah, that's – we were going to do it again this year, but we were a bit slow getting our entry in and uh, didn't get accepted, unfortunately. Mm. But next year? Next year? Maybe. Hey. Maybe. Never too old. Well, get that Moffat book written and then you'll have some time at Easter to oh, I'll have the have money. A, no pressure or anything. I'll no have pressure. the money too. It's an expensive operation, <laughs> it race is. driving, I it tell is. you. It is, it is, it is. That's, uh, you need sponsors. You need to get people yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. And you don't pay for it. That's the, the great Oh, that would be it. a dream. Mm. Wouldn't it be a dream if the phone rang and someone said, you know, can you come and drive my car at Bathurst? Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> It would be great. Uh, Hass, mate, it's been great to sit down with you and I hope some of our listeners have appreciated the, the insight into where you've been, what you've seen, who you've done it with. Uh, there's plenty more stuff left to come down the track, I'm sure, yeah. mate. Thanks for sitting down. And they say you've been blessed if you if you work in something that you love and for me it's been an absolute dream and it hasn't felt like a day of work. There you go, Sleuthers. David Hassel on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. What a great journey. Been there, seen it written about it, talked about it, 
and occasionally got behind the wheel and done it himself. Although you do have to check out the vision of him sliding across the bonnet of Peter Jansen's car at that Calderelli cross in that accident that he spoke about uh, earlier in the chat. It is, it's unbelievable footage. Uh, it is on our social media. Have a look. Actually, you know what? We'll put it on our website as well in our video section so you can find it and tell all your friends about it. Don't worry. He was okay. Uh, we've got the proof. He was on the podcast 50 years later to prove that he was A-OK. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Next week, I sit down one-on-one with Walkinshaw Andretti United team principal Bruce Stewart. So we talk about the big move to Ford, we talk about his history in the sport and how's it all going to go next year when WAU is not on the red side anymore. There's a whole pile of interesting topics that we delve into in that chat. That one is next Wednesday on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Repco. They usually go live around lunchtime, but the way that you don't miss out on the podcasts is subscribing. Subscribe wherever you listen to your pods, uh, to our show, so you get those notifications when you know that a new episode will be there and you can go and download it and listen until your ears are content. Tuesdays, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. Thursdays, Fridays, it's Repco Supercars Weekly. We've got you covered on the Motorsport Podcast Network for plenty of motor racing content to keep you happy week in, week out. We've got a whole bunch of chats to record in upcoming weeks. Keep your suggestions rolling in. Keep those reviews flowing online as well. And we'll chat to you next week with another edition of the V8 Salute Podcast, powered by Repco. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.